You're listening to audio from New City Church in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. We are a gospel-centered church with a heart for the next generation, passionate about making disciples who will renew our city in the real Jesus. For more information about New City, please visit our website at www.mynewcity.church. Good morning, everybody. Acts chapter 2. Let's crack open the book together this morning. My prayer is that the book cracks us open this morning. That's my desire for us today. We uh, just finished preaching through the book of Ruth last week. So if you didn't catch any of that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to uh, the messages online. Um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be starting the book of First Peter, which I'm really excited about. It's written to people who are in exile for their faith. They're experiencing soft persecution. So like verbal abuse kind of stuff. And so I think it's going to be a really timely word for us as missionaries in our city. But until then, we got a couple of kind of one-off messages for the next several weeks into Easter. And so this morning we're camping out in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. We'll primarily be spending our time looking at the last half of that, like 44 through uh, 47. And here's why we're going there this morning. We are in the phase of becoming a church family that we are moving from becoming merely a crowd who like the same thing and becoming a community that are together beholding Jesus. There is a difference between sitting next to someone and actually being shoulder to shoulder with someone. You know what I mean? Connection, community, focused on Jesus together, speaking the gospel into one another's lives. Our desire is for a united church family. And so what better to do than to look back to the cues that the early church has given us, the practices that the early church has given us to say, how do we actually go about living out the calling of God on our church in this city? So I want to go ahead and read the text. If you're able, will you stand this morning in reverence for the reading of God's word? This is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. It says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved This is God's word. Y'all can have a seat. I want to pray. Uh, Father, we need you this morning. We are asking that you would open our eyes to the glory of Christ in this passage, that we would leave not just with more things to do, but a better grip on Jesus who has loved us and given himself up for us. We pray this in his name today. Amen. I want to start digging into this text by giving you a, uh, a highly political map to look at. What could go wrong? Talking about politics and church, right? That's never gone wrong at all. These are the results of the last presidential election, okay? 
And you know what the blue means, you know what the red means, right? You got Democrats and Republicans represented there. This is a highly divided map, okay? And that's probably the most obvious statement of the year. This is a highly divided map. A significant split right here. And depending on your political leanings right now, you're like, uh, it's not a 50-50 split. Like, there's a clear winner. Like, depending on what's going on in you, you feel that in different ways. I am not bringing up this math to make a specific political point here. More than that, I'm trying to point out, point out an unfortunate irony. This is a picture of the United States of America. Like, united is in the name, you guys. Split. This last year, unless you had your head buried in the sand, I think more than ever, it was one of the most polarizing election seasons of our lifetime. But unity, being united, is a fundamental human desire, but it is, hear me, an impossible human reality. We experience this on the big scale and on the small scale because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who were walking in the cool of the day with God in the garden, united with him and united with one another because they stepped out of rhythm, out of bounds with God's good created design. Guess what? Unity became fractured. But when Jesus stepped into the world, he made a new kind of unity possible. He said, I, I am through my death and resurrection going to create a family that is so strangely united, so strangely diverse, that the watching world won't be able to help but notice. What takes a 50-50 split like that map and makes those people, hear me, not just tolerant of one another, but warm toward one another. Like so often, culture's best vision of unity is tolerating one another. Jesus does far more than that. Acts 2 is going to unfold that for us. It is the gospel that creates this kind of unity. When the gospel, the good news of Jesus's kingdom comes to bear in a place and in a people, wildly different kinds of people are united around their need for God and everything else, their politics, their structures, their systems, all of it takes a second or third chair. Hear me, if it even gets a chair. When the gospel is first, the church operates as an embassy of heaven. You know what an embassy is? If you were to go to a foreign country and there's a United States embassy, when you walk through the doors of that embassy, you are standing on American soil. All the rights and privileges of a citizen apply there. There's safety, there's shelter. What if New City Church was known as an embassy of the kingdom of God in Champaign-Urbana? where people walked into this family and experienced an uncommon unity. You see, when we moved to plant this church, we asked the question, what if? Like, what if God could do that through us? 
Like, what if people came to New City and they didn't just hear about unity, but they saw that when the gospel is first, people are gentler and more hopeful? That there's actually room for all kinds of people at the feet of Jesus? That's what's on the line for us. Will we be a crowd that perpetuates the same spirit of division that people can find anywhere in the world? Or will we be a people of supernatural unity? Acts 2 is going to be our blueprint here. I think we're going to see three things in this text, three marks of gospel unity. Here's the outline. United in generosity, united in mission, and united in hospitality. Number one, united in generosity. Let's look back at the Bible, verse 44. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. I want to ask you a personal question this morning. Do you have any sandpaper people in your life? You know what a sandpaper person is? It's a person you get around and you just like, you bristle against them a little bit, right? I know none of you have sandpaper people and they're definitely not in this room. So just for our friends, we'll go ahead and talk about this. The early church was filled with sandpaper people, all different kinds of people from around the world. And through the power of the gospel, it was still legendary for its generosity. Did you catch that? All who believed were together and had all things in common. The early church that we're spending time with this morning is made up of people who have just traveled from around the ancient world to Jerusalem for um, a harvest festival called Pentecost. So there's all kinds of diverse people there. And while they're in town, the Holy Spirit came to this small group of believers who were gathered there, and boom, the church is born, right? The, what we just sang, the church of Christ was born and the spirit lit the flame. That's this moment. That's what is being talked about there. They start proclaiming the gospel, telling people about Jesus's resurrection. And all these people from all around the world, they hear the message and they go, I'm in. All right, let's do it. So they go from being a church of less than, picture this, a church of less than 200 people to being a mega church in an afternoon. Yikes. Like I'm stressed enough, right? <laughs> a mega church overnight. Let that, we're talking about a big church here, y'all. Let that settle in on you for a second. The church we're reading about is gigantic, yet it's filled with real and intimate relationships. We tend to moralize church size. We tend to go, man, big churches are just sellouts. Some of them probably are. Like, let's be honest about that. But big or small, the thing that, that makes the community compelling is not the size. It is whether or not God has shown up there. Is the spirit at work in the church. It's whether the gospel has gripped the hearts of the People, You see, all these people with different backgrounds, different cultures, different customs are united around one thing, and his name is Jesus. You think they had much else in common besides Jesus? Man, some of these people didn't even speak the same language. They weren't all into basketball. They didn't listen to the same bands, not familiar with the same YouTubers, right? These are different kinds of people. 
But the gospel took those people and gave them a supernatural unity. The Bible there, don't miss it. It says they had all things in common. This church was united in generosity. Whenever a need came up, when it says they had all things in common, here's what would go down. Somebody would come with a need, say, man, I can't, I, I, I can't buy the food that I need for my family. And somebody else who is more wealthy would say, okay, well, I'm going to go sell some extra property that I have. I'm going to take that money and make sure that all your needs are met. There was this communal love for one another, this generous spirit. We have to ask the question, friends, like, like our church is growing, praise God. It's really, it's a fun and exciting season to see what the Lord is doing. But hear me, we cannot point to that alone and say, God's at work. We have to ask ourselves, is our church growing in what actually counts? Does a generous spirit mark the quality of our relationships, New City? Is there a willingness in us, in you, to limit your own life for the needs of others? Are you willing to sell the field to provide for the needs of the person next to you? Here's what that generous spirit can look like in our church family. Like, Lord willing, we will send a team to plant a church somewhere else in the next three years. That's my my desire before the Lord. Church planting costs money. Like maybe a generous spirit in this season looks like, hey, I'm going to take a less extravagant vacation for the next three years, and I'm going to give the difference to see a church planted somewhere else. Maybe you're thinking like, man, I'm a broke college student, so I don't, like, I spent my last buck 25 on an Egg McMuffin this morning, so I'll give that, right? If I find an Egg McMuffin stuffed in the joy box this morning, I'm going to be furious. (laughs) You may not have money, but guess what? You can study at a family's house after they've gone to bed, after their kids have gone to bed. So mom and dad can go get out, get a drink and relax together. You can, yeah, I get a hearty amen from that. You can see Allison over here after the gathering. I'm sure she will hook you up. It may look like, hey, I'm going to take my sandpaper person the person in this room who most rubs me the wrong way, I'm going to take them to lunch and I'm going to hear their story. I'm going to learn what makes them tick so I can pray for them more specifically. So if you get a lunch invitation right after the service, you know you are on somebody's nerves, okay? I'm not asking anybody to lunch today. It's too dangerous now. This is the mark of a community united in generosity but we face some barriers, right? Generosity isn't always intuitive for us. It is something that the spirit of God has to teach us. What are some of the barriers? Here's a couple I thought of this week. Uh, Greed. Greed. You know what greed is? It is hoarding resources sinfully. Like I'm just going to stockpile while everybody around me is suffering and I'm not going to be aware of the needs of the people around me. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. If your heart is wrapped around hoarding resources, you are missing out on the culture of heaven in your life. All things in common 
Living with that spirit is an exercise in training your heart. Can I be honest with you? Giving is really difficult for me. Still, like every, every time the direct deposit comes out, I see it and I feel it in my guts just a little bit. But every time it happens, here's what I'm saying to my money. You don't own me. You were given to me by God for the glory of God and the good of the people around me. We train our hearts in generosity when we reject greed and we embrace a spirit of giving. I think one of the other barriers that we face to generosity is that the generosity of God has not become real to your heart yet. Like you look at the gospel and you're like, yeah, Jesus was clearly generous. That makes sense. But hear me, friend, look at Jesus for a second this morning. Jesus gave you everything. So you don't have to live in a scarcity mentality. Ephesians chapter five, verses five through eight say this, by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him. That's Jesus and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. The riches of heaven become yours in Jesus Christ. Like friend, you don't have to save up grace to use later. There is no limit for you. Christian, if you, if you believe this, you don't have to ration it. His mercies are new every morning. And when you start embracing that, that the grace of God is an overflowing reality, guess what? your grip on everything else in your life will begin to loosen because you realize that your deepest needs have been met in the person and work of Jesus. Your finances, your time, your treasure, all of it, you will become a more generous person. When it comes to his children, the father is a big spender. He spared no expense the life of his son, who he had loved forever, who he had known forever, who he had been with forever. He laid down the life of that son to give you the inheritance you didn't deserve. How can we look at that generosity and not begin to overflow with generosity ourselves? This is the calling of a healthy church to be united in generosity. If you're a kid in the room, since we're talking about money, we're talking about generosity, I want you to try and draw a picture of money as detailed as you possibly can. Draw a picture of a dollar bill. And then I want you after the service, come show it to me. I want to see it. Okay. All right. Number two, they weren't just united in generosity. They were united in mission In mission. Look back at verse 46. It says, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Let's stop there for a second. These Christians, these people who have been transformed by Christ, they're still attending the Jewish temple together. 
They're all huddling up and they're going to Jewish temple. We do well when we see something in the Bible like this to ask a simple question. Why? What's going on here? First and foremost, this is what they're doing. They're going into the temple and they're hearing the Old Testament taught. So uh, somebody's opening up this book and they're saying, uh, here are the prophets and a Messiah is going to come. And so they hear that Old Testament word taught and then they huddle up after. Um, be a little imaginative here. It doesn't actually say they huddle in the text, but they say, okay, how did Jesus fulfill all of this? How is this pointing to Jesus? This is the content of what the apostles had been teaching. They'd been looking at the Old Testament of scripture and going, here's how this points to Jesus. Here's how this is fulfilled in Jesus. Here's why this is about Jesus. So they're hearing that content and then they're going and they're making sense of it in light of the Christian story. But two, here's the other thing they were doing. They're going to the temple and they're sharing the gospel. They're saying like, hey, I noticed you were, I noticed you were nodding along when um, the, uh, the priest was talking about um, a Messiah who was going to come, a deliverer who was going to come. I noticed you were nodding along about that. Did you know he's actually already come in the flesh and he was actually killed and he rose from death, right? They're using these relationships to advance the mission of God. That's what they're doing in the Jewish temples. These disciples were united around that mission. This whole church was living on mission. Jesus had handed them a commission months earlier, the same commission, hear me, that he has handed to you and I to make disciples of all nations. This church had a missionary mentality. They had some grit going into uncomfortable spaces and they did it together. You see, oftentimes we can think that the mission of God to make disciples belongs to the paid staff of the church and to the pastor. Like this moment can be kind of confusing to us on the mission of God because you guys feel like an audience who is observing and I'm up here doing the real work of mission. That mentality is the quickest way for our church to die. To die. Look right at me. You are new city. You are. In John 20 and in John 20 verses 21 and 22, Jesus says, peace be with you as the father has sent me. So I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy spirit. There are not certain Christians that are sent new city family. Every one of us has been sent to alert the world to the rule and reign of King Jesus. Every one of us in this room. Here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that every one of you will be equally gifted at evangelism. Like for some of y'all, you're thinking about man going and like, I'm gonna, so I need to go to a temple and like share the gospel with this random person I just met. Like not all of you are going to be filled with this bold, courageous, proclaim, proclaiming spirit. But every believer is called to live evangelistically. Whether you are a bold proclaimer of the message or you are as first Peter three would, uh, would compel us to be, to live in such a way that brings and invites questions from the watching world. 
Think of these Christians at the temples right now. Like they're going in, they're taking the Lord's Supper, they're being insanely generous with one another, and the watching world can't help but say, what in the world is going on with these people? That's what happens in a church united on mission. Here's the question we have to ask in light of this. Is your life questionable to the watching world? Is it obvious that when you walk in a room that Jesus has come to town and he is a good friend of yours? Is your life structured and built in such a way that people look at the habits and rhythms and priorities of your life and go, what in the world is wrong with this person? Either something's gone amazingly well or something's gone amazingly wrong. And that's the space that we get to share the hope of the gospel in. Would the people in your life say that you exist to win an argument or would they say that you exist to win them? Would they say that you exist to climb the ladder in your job or that you are in that space as a Christian existing to lift others up so that they can see and experience the goodness of Jesus? I often, I often say this, this is a reality for us. Things break, people die and relationships end. That's going to happen for every person in your world. And if you live evangelistically, if you live united on mission, guess what? In the hardest moments of people's life, you know where they're going to turn? They're going to turn to you. A voice of compassion and reason. You don't have to be a gifted evangelist to make a difference on the mission of God. The second question I think we have to ask, because the early church did this together. Who is on mission with you? Who do you share the burden and the weight of reaching other people with? Here's, here's how I know when I'm on mission with somebody, when I'm actually on mission in heart with them. When the lost person, that they're, when they're crying over the lost person in their life, and those tears are in my eyes too. Like when my heart actually longs to see the people connected to them come to know Jesus. I think that's the mentality. This is who your village family is meant to be, friends. A family on mission. A family on mission. Are you united on the mission of God? And then finally, the last part here I want us to want to flesh out today. Um, they were united in hospitality. Let's look back at verse 46. We'll read 46 and 47. It says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This church is sharing meals together all the time. They were sitting around a table Lots of eye contact, right? When you, when you sit at a table and you put your phone down. Did you know you can do that? Actually, you can like sit down and eat a meal and like put your phone in the other room. I just want to make sure you guys knew that that was possible. Um, sit down, they're making eye contact. They slowed down from the mission together and they remembered Jesus and the fellowship that they have in him. This is the essence of hospitality. 
It's what it is. Slowing down, creating space, remembering Jesus together. Food is a funny thing. When we eat together, it is a reminder that we can't exist on our own. Without food, every one of us would die, right? doesn't matter how in shape you are. It doesn't matter what supplements you took. I don't care if you've made it to your 100th Peloton, Peloton ride. Congratulations. You would still die without food. So when we sit down to eat together, we are actually telling a story to one another. Do you realize that? We are reminding one, each other that we don't have all the answers within ourselves. That we need something outside of ourselves to give us life. We are, however subtly, reminding one another of the gospel. The early church was united in giving and receiving this kind of hospitality. And it wasn't primarily about the food, though. It was about the relationships. Hospitality humanizes it causes us to stop seeing a person as an issue to be solved and to start seeing them as an image bearer. We stop seeing them as a roadblock to our happiness. And for just a moment, we share our need together. Powerful hospitality, hear me church family, won't happen because everyone is in the same political party in this church. Like that's not going to happen, right? That's not the kind of community that Jesus is getting at here. He took these people who presumably thought very differently about politics, even about family, about life, and united them not around their agreement, but around their need. Hear me, like Jesus is going to mess with your politics, okay? He's going to mess with all of those things, but that is not the primary source of our unity as the church family. We are united in our need for Jesus. If you admit you have need around here, you are going to fit in so nicely. If you are looking for a church of people who aren't needy, who are going to be stronger and tougher, you're going to have to keep looking. But if I can save you some heartache, you're not going to find it. we are actually rejoicing in our weakness around here. Like that we, we actually need Jesus, which should tell you something important. It should tell you that there's room for you here. When everyone in our community, friends, begins to recognize that their deepest unity is around Jesus and what he has done, every other potential source of unity, liking the same things, voting the same way, those all just begin to feel like a cheap imitation. That's a social club. That's not a family. Jesus is building a family here. How can needy people change the world? Hospitality. Tim Chester says it eloquently, I think. He says, if you were to take mountains and meals out of the Bible, you wouldn't have a lot left. Jesus uses the table as his greatest weapon on the mission. 
He sits with sinners. Friends, we open up our dinner tables to one another, to the poor, to the homeless, to the nations. You want to be nervous? Invite strangers into your home. That's the biblical paradigm for hospitality. But Nick, it's a risk. Yeah, it's a mission. Do you want to get to the end of your life and go, man, I had a very risk-free existence. It was really vanilla, bland, saltine cracker kind of existence. Or do you want to be able to say to Jesus, Lord, I did everything I could to alert the people around me to your goodness and grace. I did everything I could to invest in relationships with others. Friends, Jesus didn't even have a home and he was the most hospitable person who ever lived. So don't give me, I have a dorm room. I don't have a full kitchen. Yeah, neither did Jesus. And he was great at it. We can make space for one another in coffee shops, at home, at homes, in villages, all of these spaces. See, strong differences in opinion would cause the world to close off hospitality. But why not us? Because Jesus has set a table for the most incompatible people with him. See, right before Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, he, he gathered his disciples in a room. And if you've seen the painting of the Last Supper, right, he gets a table for, for, uh, for 26, but they all sit on one side, right? There's 13 people there. And they sit down. And Jesus looks them in the eye and he says, it's not going to be long. I don't have long with you, but here's what I do have. I have really ordinary things like bread and wine, and he takes them and he breaks the bread and he says, this bread is my body broken for you. And he takes the wine and he pours it and he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink in remembrance of me, in, in remembrance of me. Jesus sets a table of hospitality for his people. And it's why we take the Lord's Supper every week, New City Family. Because we are remembering this is not a story. This story of unity is not primarily about what we have done and can do for God. It is about a story of Jesus, our Lord, who has set a table for us. Jesus is not asking you to do something that he has not first done for you and to you. Jesus set a table for you. What if we were this kind of church? A church so radically generous that needs started disappearing in our community and ultimately in our city. What if we, what if we were as strategic about the mission of God as we were about our, our, fantasy, our fantasy draft this month for March Madness? if we were strategic and we gave some of our best energy to the mission, what if we believed that hospitality was actually an act of war? Because that's what Jesus did. By setting a table, he went to war on sin and death. And guess what? He won. He won. And so right now, New City family, I want to invite you to respond to the word this morning. Reflect. Reflect. Consider, man, is there, is there unconfessed sin in you? 
Are there people in this room that you are struggling to have unity with that you need to go actually seek reconciliation with right now and say, I'm really sorry, I've been holding a grudge against you. And then come to this table that Jesus has set for us, the bread and the wine. If you're a follower of Jesus, the table is open to you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'd ask you not to take the Lord's Supper right now, but ask the person who you came with, why do you do this? What does this mean to you? And then finally, we're going to sing. We're going to sing together, remembering that our unity is in Jesus who loves us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace to us. We're asking that you would do a miracle here. We're really... We're really not interested in planting the best church that we can plant with our best strategies and systems and structures and all that stuff matters. It's, it's a gift from you. But Lord, what we really desire is to see a church where your power is put on display, where the relationships are so inviting that it makes us nervous how seen and loved we are. Would you do this? We pray that you would. In your name, amen. I love you, New City.